it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I am not Rod Serling, but I am a celebrity impersonator, and you are about to enter a dimension. Not of Kardashians or reality TV, but of nostalgia, of television programs and motion pictures that have transcended the passage of time. That's the sign we'll step ahead. Your next stop, classic TV and film podcast. I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to TV Retrovision, the podcast where we celebrate all our yesterdays, today and tomorrow. In the second and concluding part of our conversation with Robert Crane, we continue our discussion of the life and tragic murder of his dad, Bob Crane, star of 60s sitcom Hogan's Heroes. The year is 1978. Bob has put the disappointment of his failed series, The Bob Crane Show, and minor film roles behind him. He was hitting the road playing dinner theater, a concept that was enormously popular at the time. It was also a period where his fascination with Polaroid cameras, combined with more readily available videotaping technology, allowed him to pursue his hobby of photographing beautiful women and eventually videotaping them doing, well, anything they wanted to. Bear in mind, the late 60s and much of the 70s were all about the sexual revolution. Other elements would come into play, resulting in the murder of Bob Crane. What follows is Robert's unflinching discussion of all of this and his coming to terms with it all thanks to the writing of the book Crane, Sex, Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder. And uh, from then, that takes us into 1976. Uh, he's still doing um, uh, guest star, you know, roles on TV series, uh, Policewoman, and you know, things like that. But and hard he's for also him to deal at- with. I'm sorry to interrupt, but sorry, was that hard no, no. for him to deal with? The fact that you know the show just didn't connect, and he was back to guest starring, or was he okay with that? Uh, yeah, he was very disappointed. Very disappointed. He knew uh, the Bob Crane show was not a good show. Right. He knew it. Right. Uh, he's trying to do his best. Every you know the cast, everybody on the show is doing their best, of course, and you know they're all professionals, and you do the best you can do. But he knew he knew it. It just didn't have it. So that was that was very disappointing, and especially being with the MTM. Uh, production company which was you know big time big time um so he hit the road again and uh he's doing his play and again he's got this play down to a system where it's uh four cast members he's got uh different cast members that can do it you know if somebody else is busy he'll choose somebody else for the four roles and of course he's, he's one of the four roles and uh they hit the road and uh he's got to make money and uh support uh, a second family at this point. He married Patty, uh, who was Clink's second secretary. Uh, There was a secretary on season one, and then beginning on season two, Patty came in and played Clink's secretary, and that's how they met. Uh, So, you know, he had to work. Jump ahead, then we go to 1978, and he's on the road in Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, just outside of Phoenix and doing a play for a month. And that's where he, uh, was murdered. 
I don't know how much detail you want to go into on this because people listening may not be aware of the situation. Um, you know, sort of the road to that murder. I mean, it revealed to at least the general public, you know, a whole other side to your dad. Yes. I don't, and again, I'm not sure what you're comfortable talking about here. Um, so, I'm totally comfortable, Ed. Go. Oh, well, okay then. So what was sort of, you know, give us a sense of the road. Like the, there was the, this other side to Bob Crane that people didn't know, basically. How much of that was sort of reflected in his private life before the murder? And what do you want to say about that situation, that whole situation with him and what he was involved in and that sort of thing? Okay. It, 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 you know, we're, we're in a very different time. I, I don't have to tell you and your listeners that. Um, uh, and I, I think the pendulum swings in societies, you know, it goes back and forth and we're in a time now where, uh, women should be noticed. They, and they should not be putting up with, um, a lot of things that males did in the past. So, that is the foundation. I understand that, and I agree with it. This was back in the well. It started in the '60s, '60s and '70s for my dad. There were a number of things going on. He became a TV star. Uh, he met a lot of attractive women. He loved women, even though he was married twice. Uh, probably should not have been married. Um, loved women. Women would come by and visit the Hogan set, not just for him, for Richard Dawson, for, you know, uh, other people on the show. Right. Um, so they got to, you know, uh, playboy playmates coming by to say, you know, uh, it was like, uh, you know, a candy store. <laughs> right. So he, he loved all of that and technology. So Let's remember Polaroid cameras. I don't know how many people in your audience remember Polaroid cameras. That's shooting a, a photo. The film comes out, spits it out, instant photo of what you just took. It was, you know, mind blowing. Then from there, it goes to home videotape machines. And these items look like they were, you know, from the Kazakhstan. Uh, Defense Department. I mean, these reel-to-reel videotape decks were huge. The cameras were gigantic. Uh, it was not your cell phone. It was not your little cell phone where you could do your selfie and, you know, do your video footage. This was big items and reel-to-reel videotape. So now everybody's scratching their head in your audience. Huh? What's this guy talking about? <laughs> of course. So. Part of the attraction for my dad was technology. He loved cameras. He loved editing. He used to edit his own, uh, you know, different parts of his radio show on, on audio tape. And he found out he could edit videotape. Same principle, you know, with the, the little stickum stuff that glues the two pieces of tape together, you could make your own videos. So this is a new thing. And, People, men and women, love seeing themselves on camera and playing it back instantly. So you take that a step further where uh, a woman wants to show more than just a nice smile. Right. Um, and, and my dad is game because he loves women, whatever you want to do. There are no drugs involved. 
a la Cosby. Right. There's no right. one's taking, you know, a drink with a, with a, uh, d- uh, what's it called? A roofie in it. Right. Mm-hmm. None of that. This is all, you know, and the equipment is so large. There's no hiding the equipment. I mean, it's right there. You either want to pose in front of this camera and watch it back on the monitor instantly, or you don't. And a lot of women that he met on the road, including women in his cast, for instance, on the play. Oh, yeah, yeah, I want to see what this looks like. Well, you know, they're goofing around. One thing leads to another, and uh, it presents a whole new avenue of, uh, I don't know what to call it, creativity. (laughs) Uh, to put it nicely. So you're talking, uh, you're talking about nudity, you're talking about sex acts, I mean, you're talking about all this stuff? Yes. Okay. Well, it starts off nudity where there may be, uh, and again, he is letting, not letting, he's, he's not coercing women. They are looking at the monitor live and going, oh, yeah, look at this, you know, and they're looking at themselves and Maybe they unbutton their blouse for fun. They're giggling and all that. And my dad is not going to say no. He's not making them do it, but he's a guy. And he's not going to say, oh, no, uh, you better button up here. Uh, well, no, because they're, <laughs> right. it's not going anywhere. They're just going to be watching this tape together as they looked at Polaroid shots together. And I know it's it's starting to sound a little seamy and a little uh, greasy, like you want to take a shower right now. But that's what was going on in the 60s and 70s. It was also, I forgot to mention this, it's also part of the sexual revolution. Yeah. Where people slept with each other just to do it. I, I, I interviewed a, a writer-director named Tom Mankiewicz, who has passed on. But he's part of the Hollywood Mankiewicz family, Joe Mankiewicz, Herman Mankiewicz. And he was telling me back when he was dating, you know, in the 60s, the swinging 60s, at the end of the evening, it would be like a, a thank you to each other for a nice date. You would hop into bed. Right. And then say, good night. Thanks. We'll see you again. And you either did or you didn't. But that's what was going on in the 60s and 70s. Um, so I have to underline this whole thing with the mood of the country and world at that time. Uh, there was the you know swing in London. There was L.A. was pretty swinging place. New York, of course, you know the big cities, and um, so that's what happened. So uh, in, in today's uh, societal world that you know we're talking about, which I again I I'm glad for women. I'm glad it swung the other way, and I'm glad you know there there are limits I think on some things, but um, it was swinging the other way you know, back in the 60s and 70s, where everybody just said, hey, let's go, it's a party. Right. And we'll be able to watch it back on our home Sony videotape machine now. We don't have to turn the film into the drugstore. We can look at it right now. And that was part of the uh, innocent fun that was happening. Right. But then you, obviously, there was something else brewing because, you know, again, this ended up with your father's death. Yes. Well, that that uh, hooks into the videotape part of it. Hooks in with a, a guy named John Carpenter, not the film director, but the Sony and Akai uh, home video salesperson. 
that my dad met on the set of Hogan's because John Carpenter was visiting Richard Dawson, who bought a Sony home video deck and camera. Uh, you know, other people, you know, Sammy Davis bought one, Tommy Smothers, and, you know, people like that. You were, it started, you know, before it went mass market, it kind of started out with the uh, people in show business getting a first crack at it and that kind of thing. And that's where my dad met John Carpenter on the set of Hogan's. My dad wound up buying the video deck and the camera, uh, like we mentioned, and uh, it became a thing where Carpenter liked hanging out with the, you know, well-known people. And when my dad was on the road doing a play, Carpenter would visit him in different cities, basically to go to clubs at night and party. After, you know, like if my dad has an 8 o'clock play, uh, and it's over at, let's say, 10 o'clock. Well, it's on to the clubs. You know, you, you go to the discos and whatever was going on in the 60s and 70s. And uh, Carpenter loved that. And he loved the little buzz of, you know, hanging out with Colonel Hogan. And women are coming up to my dad. And, you know, he loves this. So this goes on for a number of years. And then it finally, uh, as my dad is approaching 50, which was a big deal, <laughs> In, you know, back in the 70s, it was still a big deal to get to 50. Um, now, you know, what would you know, would they say? 50 is the new 30 or something, something like whatever. Right. Yeah, but 50 was still a big deal. Um, so he's, you know, seeing 50 down the road here, and he's going to make changes. He's divorcing his uh, second wife, Patty. They, they were in the middle of a horrible divorce. They had a, a son together. Um, and he was going to clean up his act, so he said. And one of the things he was going to do is to get rid of the hanger-on John Carpenter, again, not the film director, uh, and make changes in his life. He told me Carpenter is just becoming a pain, and you know he's just a hanger-on now. It used to be fun. Now you know I'm changing, and it's not fun anymore, and I'm going to make changes. He told me this. And then two weeks shy of 50, my dad is murdered. Well, the Scottsdale Police Department, which uh, handled about two murders a year at that time in 1978, went for Carpenter from the word go. Carpenter had uh, means, opportunity. He was in Scottsdale at the time visiting my dad. They apparently had a big blowout one night at a club argument when there were eyewitnesses. Um, and then that night, they think around two or three o'clock in the morning, my dad was bludgeoned to death, hit twice in the head while he was sleeping. No break in. He was in an apartment, by the way, that the uh, dinner theater had an apartment for the so-called star of each production, not a hotel, but an apartment. No break in. No, uh, nothing was damaged. No no fight, you know, they could tell. he was, My dad was in bed asleep when he was hit. And a couple of things went missing based on photos and tapes of the apartment because my dad had all the equipment with him. He had Nikon cameras. He had Polaroids. He had videotape equipment. That's how he traveled. Uh, what was missing was one of the tripods that held one of the cameras and a book, a little notebook of Polaroids of women that my dad had shot over the years. Those are the two items that are missing. And uh, they found 
electrical cord tied around my dad's neck as the kind of the, the coup de gras, you know, after he was hit twice. Um, so who would think of, you know, a tripod for a camera? Who would think of electric cord from one of the videotape uh, decks or cameras? I, I forget which now. Um, you know, well, John Carpenter, friendly videotape machine salesperson. Right. So they went for him for uh, the police went to him uh, from the day one. Unfortunately, there, there was just not enough. Uh, this is pre-DNA right. uh, right. testing. They went through three district attorneys in Maricopa County, uh, Phoenix. And finally, on the third district attorney, now this is, we're coming up on 16 years. The third one said, yeah, we either get him now or it's never going to happen. So the murders in 1978, the trial of John Carpenter is in 1994. So evidence has been lost. You know, again, there's now there's DNA testing in, in 94, but it's too late on some of the items. Some of the blood items, samples have dried up. They've been mishandled. They've been lost. Uh, so the prosecution did the best they could with the trial. And I was there uh, uh, one time on the stand just offering the what I told you, Ed, about, you know, my dad saying he's going to make changes and right. Carpenter's a pain in the butt and, you know, I'm going to lose this guy and uh, move on with my life. That's really the only thing I could add. Um, and trial went on, I believe, four to six weeks of, uh, Different people were called, you know, again, some of the women that they met at clubs were called, the people from the dinner theater, uh, Patty, Patty, his uh, wife of record, because uh, there was never a divorce. Uh, she was called, I was called, you know, we all appeared on the stand. I remember my one day on the stand, I looked over at the jury who would not look at me. And I was looking at each face and I thought, nah, this thing is a loser, it's a loser. Their right. prosecution's done the best they could with what they have, but they just didn't have enough. Didn't have enough. It, beyond a doubt, you know, it, they couldn't seal it. So uh, Carpenter was a free man. Yeah, finally yeah. for him after sixteen years of you know being in the news and off and on and that kind of thing, and then uh, he wound up uh, dying four years later, anyway, of a heart attack right. at uh, seventy. But that's that's the long sorted story. Should did my dad deserve this? Absolutely not. He did not hurt people. Uh, again, with the whole issue with women, it was all consensual. Uh, nothing hidden. No drugs. None of that. Right. It was a bit more innocent for its day. Again, back to the the free love in sixties and seventies. Times were very different. Absolutely, they were. Yep. They were. Uh, so no, he didn't deserve this again. Should, should he have been married? No. Right. Uh, was, was he a good father? Yeah. Cause he was a big kid. He was a big kid who liked to have fun. Uh, but he didn't hurt people. Right. But here's know. the thing. You've got a situation where as a son, you're mourning the fact that your father has been killed. But there's the other side where now this scandal is breaking out, whether it was justified or not, the times or not, a scandal nonetheless broke out in the aftermath of his death. 
Yeah. What was it like dealing with that? Because you're dealing with two very different things at the same time. Yeah, it was. Um, so you're going from sadness, and uh, you can't believe it. I mean, it's you're you know it it, it only happens to somebody else. Right. You know, you see it on the news at night, and you see, you know, that was the day of, of Vietnam, and you saw families, you know, losing sons and husbands and stuff. But that happened to somebody else. Right. Never, never you. So that hit us, you know, again, small town, Connecticut family mentality. So we're ill prepared for anything like that. Uh, basically, my mom, who was happily remarried to Chuck, my stepdad, uh, ran away from this whole thing. I mean, she, we, we've never, my family has never talked about this. Wow. Um, so I, I, I'll put in a cheap plug for my book. I, wrote, I co-wrote a book with Chris Fryer. Uh, crane sex celebrity and my father's unsolved murder. And I dealt with it because I, I was the person who went to Arizona to see my dad on the slab at the morgue. Nobody else in my family. Well, nobody else in my family should have, I think I was the right person to do it. It wouldn't have been my younger sisters. My mom certainly would have, wouldn't have gone and it wouldn't be up to my stepdad. He was taking care of my mom. Right. So I think it was me, and I wanted to go there, and I did. And I said my final goodbyes to my dad. You know, yeah. Laying there on a on a cold slab in uh, at the morgue Jeez. in uh, Maricopa County. Um, so dealing with that, complete sadness and shock. And then these other stories are coming out about Hogan had a second life, you know, Bob Crane's secrets. And then they're in the Inquirer and, you know, all those, the Star and all those magazines. Yeah, it's very embarrassing. I mean, I remember as a kid, because I went to public schools all the way through, no private schools in our family. And, you know, there would be kids at school who didn't like Hogan's Heroes because their parents didn't like it, you know, because they thought it was about a concentration camp and it wasn't, it was about a POW camp, uh, or, uh, they didn't like his radio show or, you know, and then that kind of shaded me in a way. I I don't mean the new way of shading. I mean, it, it colored me already before I even got to know this person. Right. Um, so we, we, I felt like a freak for a lot of it, you know, because uh, everybody at school, you know, their fathers and mothers were attorneys and dentists and, you know, had legitimate jobs. And uh, I think they looked at show business as kind of a circus freak uh, outfit. And uh, so I always felt embarrassed about that, even though I was proud of my dad. Um, and then later for these stories to come out, um, in magazines and, you know, Rona Barrett on TV yeah. and news reports and yeah, which very feeds into the circus belief from people. You know what I mean? It feeds it. Well, see, that's yeah. what he shows people, show business people do. Yeah. Yeah. So now, now it's the follow-up. He's gone. He can't defend himself. He can't talk to any of these reporters. And now I, I felt like I, because the rest of my family didn't want to talk about it. So I kind of stepped into that role. Yeah, absolutely. So in the aftermath of all of this, I mean, you know, his, again, we go back to the Hogan's Heroes thing, his life, his death, unfortunately. Here we are in 2020. 
What is the legacy of Bob Crane then? Well, to to me, it's three three major things. I, I, Hogan's Heroes is on top, certainly. Right. And again, like I said to you earlier, my dad was born to play Hogan. I I can't picture anybody else playing Hogan. Um, so you'd have to put that at, on top. Number two, uh, again, some people know, a lot of people don't know, would be the radio years, the years of the, his radio shows in Connecticut, New York uh, State, and Los Angeles. Fabulous, off the top of his head, wildness. I'd put number three, uh, he was a pretty good drummer. And you can see some of that, too. Like, he, he would drummed on different variety, you know, back in the days of variety shows, back in the 60s and 70s, you know, Smothers Brothers and Leslie Uggams and Danny Kay, Red Skelton. Uh, he would drum on some of those shows. So you can see that as well. And uh, he loved jazz. And uh, I think he was a pretty good drummer. So in my mind, those would be the three uh, major creative events of uh, his career. Do you think that in all these years, though, that time has become a healing agent, so to speak, in the sense of what kind of people have put the death and the scandal a little further away and now the focus is more back on even if that legacy is Hogan's Heroes do you find that people remember him now more for Hogan's Heroes than what happened later in life yeah maybe some of the the newer viewers of Hogan's you know who can still see it on me tv and other outlets around the world the older people may remember the murder and you know other sordid events of that time but um uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of people just know him as Hogan now. And of course, that's, I mean, it, it's all, everything goes away. Everything fades out. Um, it was like, uh, well, I used to work for, and this is in the book as well, uh, I used to work for John Candy, the late, great uh, comedy actor. Right. And also did a couple of good dramatic pieces as well. Well, it's all starting to fade. I mean, John Candy is, uh, you know, died 25 years ago. And I, now it's, to me, it's boiled down to like three films for John. And this is not to take away anything from his career, but it just, it kind of, certain things just rise to the top and other things kind of sink away. And John Candy's career, to me now, people would know him from planes, trains, and automobiles, Uncle Buck, and Home Alone. Right. You know, they would... A lot of people don't know that he did, you know, 45 films. Uh, so using that as same kind of thing, I, and believe me, I'm not comparing my dad's career with John Candy. But, uh, you know, most of the stuff that my dad did would sink at this point, And a few things would rise and stay floating on the surface. And that would have to be, you know, number one Hogan's. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, that just... What Neil Young say, time fades away. For much more on Bob Crane, check out the book, Crane, Sex, Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder, available through Amazon and wherever books are sold. For additional episodes of TV Retrovision and our superhero podcast, Voices from Krypton, please head over to VoicesFromKrypton.net. And as if we haven't asked enough, please subscribe to this podcast, tell your friends about us, and give us a five-star review. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.